after Easter. We're glad that you're here with us. A lot of you are online. We're glad that you're joining us today, too. We're in chapter 13 of the story, and if you're not familiar with that, we're going through a book called The Story that takes us from Genesis to Revelation, and it doesn't matter if you haven't followed along with us. You can jump in. Every sermon, every lesson kind of speaks for itself as well, but we're in chapter 13 today. You know, it rarely happens. But from time to time, we hear a story, and it's always the top news story, of an airplane that went down. Now, that's something that when you hear, it's kind of nerve-wracking, especially around here in the air capital. We have a a lot of people that work in the aircraft business. And those of us who don't, most of us have been in an airplane going 500 miles an hour, and we know what that feels like. So when one goes down, it's pretty scary. And there's a lot of debris, and there's a lot of damage to the place where it landed. But when a plane goes down, one of the first things they do is say, we're investigating this. And when they're investigating it, you know what they're looking for? They're looking for the black box. Now, I've heard, you've heard too, someone say, why don't they make the plane out of the same material they make the black box out of? Because they can always find it intact. But when they find the black box, what they're looking for is to answer a couple of questions. The first question is, what happened here? And the second question is, what can we do then to make sure this doesn't happen again? And as we're reading through the story together, we see these families, and we're going to continue to see this, these families, and we read about them, and we find out what's going on in their family and the things that they went through. Last week, we looked at the life of David, and we saw some of what went wrong with his family, how things fell apart in his life. This week, we're going to look at the black box of King Solomon's family. Solomon was David's son. He was the next king of Israel. And we're going to read his story in 1 Kings and in Ecclesiastes as well. Ecclesiastes is kind of like Solomon's diary, where he lays out for us his life story. And we can learn from those mistakes. And so we're in 1 Kings chapter 11, where we're going to spend a few minutes today and just learn about how his story fell apart. Solomon is known as a man who pursued happiness, and he used all of his resources to find some kind of pleasure in life. Solomon is probably most like an American today of anybody else that we would read in the Bible, because if you ask that question, what's the purpose of life? Most people today would say, well, it's to be happy. The purpose of my life is to be happy. That's how I'm pursuing it. I'm trying to be happy. I'm using my time and my my resources and my possessions all to try to find happiness because really once you feel like that's the direction you should go, you should really go at it 100 miles an hour. I mean, you should try to find happiness. That's our purpose today. And that's how Solomon lived his life, and he took it to the extreme. If you read through his story, We learned some things about him. He tried laughter. Maybe he thought happiness is found in that kind of laughter. That's where he would find joy. So he brought in the funniest comedians. He watched the comedy channel day and night. He tried laughter, but that didn't last. He tried drinking and partying, but that didn't give him much lasting joy either. It just made him feel empty. Life had no meaning. He also tried great projects. He built houses for himself. He built parks. He built vineyards and and took up all kinds of hobbies. But he found that didn't make him happy either. And so he surrounded himself with all kinds of servants. He had maids and butlers and chauffeurs and massage therapists, people who did all his shopping for for him. He really had it made. But he concludes, it's all meaningless. None of this brings me joy. But Solomon is probably best known for pursuing happiness by having multiple wives, hundreds of wives. The Bible says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
Now, if he would have asked me, I could have saved him a lot of trouble and could have told him, this is not going to bring you happiness. But he didn't ask me that. But he surrounds himself with a thousand women. And I'm guessing that each time he got married, he probably thought to himself, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one who will really bring me happiness. This is the one who will satisfy me. And yet he never seems to find that one that brings him the happiness that he's looking for. And trying to find happiness with multiple wives is what brought him down. And we read about his plane crash here in 1 Kings chapter 11, starting with verse 1. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Amorites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, basically the whole known world at that time. And they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. Now, before this, the Lord had warned them. There's a clear message here that he sends them. And this is what he says. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Now, that's what God said. But here's the next word we, we read. Nevertheless. And so here's God's instructions. But here's what Solomon is going to do. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And so in his pursuit of happiness, Solomon decides to do things differently than what God had told him to do. He decides he knows better than God when it comes to happiness and love and marriage. And so as we recover this black box, one of the things we learn is Solomon rejected God's directions for marriage. And that's where things started to go wrong. He rejected what God had said. He decided he knew better than God in this area of his life. And I think there is something about us, especially men, that we don't follow directions really very well. Now, when you open up a gift that requires assembly or when your kids at Christmas open up a, a toy or a gift that you're going to have to put together, you can clearly see it comes with directions. But I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I, I think that we look at directions as something that people need who don't know what they're doing. And, and it's almost always something that we do is we start the assembly without ever looking at the directions. And it doesn't matter how many pieces there are, how many bolts and screws there are to go with it. When I'm doing something like that, I think, I've got this. I, I've got this. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. Now, <clears throat> if you would ask my wife, there's nothing in my past that would make it seem like I've got this. But I usually don't follow the directions. Or sometimes I'll look at the directions first, but I'll only read them long enough to go, oh, yeah, I've got this. I, this makes sense to me, and I'll jump right in. Or I just look at the pictures on the directions and don't actually read the words. Or I just skip steps. I think this is a step I don't really need. Or I, I, sometimes I look at the directions, but I think they're wrong. Have you ever done that? I'm thinking, surely the guy who gave these directions didn't know anything about this product. Or maybe something got lost in the translation here. I don't know. So basically, I think I know more than the person who invented, designed, and produced the product. And I think this is what we so often do when it comes to love and sex and marriage is, we have these directions from God. God says, here's how it works. Here's how I've designed it. Here's how I've created it. Here are my directions. And he gives us his word. And we think, oh, I can figure this one out on my own. I, I can trust my feelings on this. Or we skip steps. Or at some point, we think we know better than God. And we just go, well, he's the one who designed it, created it. But I know better than he knows. And that's what Solomon does when it comes to marriage. 
And it creates a lot of heartache. And so here's how it plays out. First, he married women from other countries. Now, God didn't have a problem with the ethnicity of that. It wasn't that kind of problem. It wasn't an idolatry problem. The problem was these women didn't worship the same God that Solomon worshiped. And they didn't share his faith. Instead, they worshiped false gods. The Moabites, for example, worshiped a God that would require child sacrifices. The Philistines and the Sidonians worshiped the God of Asherah that temple prostitutes were a part of worshiping that God. And so they were very different than Solomon's God. And eventually, the Bible tells us his wives turned his heart away from his God toward their God. And that's how it usually works. Now, the Bible tells us in the New Testament not to be unequally yoked, and that's directed toward those of you who may be dating or may be engaged, and you're dating or engaged to someone who doesn't share your faith. And I know you have good intentions, and I know you're thinking, I'm going to win their heart to God, and they're going to love God the same way I do, and you're committed to make that work. But there's probably also a lot of people in this room today who would be happy to give testimony to say, that just doesn't work. And so if you're dating someone who doesn't share your faith, you're putting yourself in a pretty risky place because what oftentimes happens is couples end up getting married and once they get married, they're operating on two different sets of blueprints. And that happens and then you start to build a home and and it's really important that you be on the same page when it comes to money and children, but you're not. You're working on two different sets of blueprints and it creates all kinds of problems. And God says, you know, it's easier for them to turn your heart away from me than it is for you to turn their heart toward me. So Solomon rejects God's direction here. He decides that he knows better than God when it comes to marriage. Another way he rejected God's direction is that Solomon takes polygamy to a whole new level. A thousand wives. And God defined marriage differently than that. In Genesis 2, verse 24, God says, this is why a man, singular, leaves his father and mother and is united. Now, that's going to be a pretty important word. He's united to his wife, not wives, but wife, and they become one flesh. Now, that word united is a really strong word. It's the idea of being glued or bonded together. And it doesn't always have to be uh, the way that we try to plan it out. It should be the way that God does. It really doesn't allow for there to be more than one. It's this idea of one and one being united as one. That's how God designed it and created it. That's how he defines marriage. And so Solomon decides, I'm going to do things differently. I want to be happy. My heart tells me this is what I should do, so this is what I'm going to do. And so in his pursuit of happiness, he ignores what God has said. Now, if you've been reading through the story, I know this gets confusing, and it's easily to confuse, but you read through the story, and you've seen these Old Testament examples, and and you might just think, it seems like God accepted polygamy. But I want you to look carefully at the black boxes, what they have really told us. They have told us again and again and again, it just doesn't work. And so in the beginning of time, Genesis 2, God says, here's marriage, one man, one woman, united as one. And then we have all these examples in the Old Testament of polygamy that just reinforce this idea that when God's directions are not followed, a lot of problems take place. There's a book by Robert Alter called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he points out that even in the Old Testament, we see all kinds of examples of polygamy. And what we see is that polygamy always wreaks havoc. 
He says that polygamy is an absolute disaster, biblically, socially, spiritually, relationally, uh, psychologically. Things just fall apart because it isn't God's design. This isn't how God designed it or planned it to be. And then in the New Testament, we return to a more clear understanding of what God originally said. It's one man, one woman, united as one. And Solomon pays a big price because he doesn't do things God's way. And God said, here are my directions. Solomon said, yeah, well, I think this will work. I know what you said, God, but I really think wife number 278 is the one. I I really love her. I think this is the one. And he puts his hope in his understanding of his own feelings, even though it violates what God has said. Now, at this point, we're halfway through our sermon. At this point, you're going, okay, polygamy is out. That's fine. I can handle that. I don't marry a thousand women. I've got this. But think about this. What would be the cultural equivalent of this? In other words, can you think of an area in our culture and in our society that goes against what God has said when it comes to marriage, that we have just decided we know better than God in this area? We just decide how we feel about it, makes the most sense, and we ignore what God says. Well, I can think of a couple of areas, and maybe you can too. I think cohabitation, couples living together before they're married. There has been a 700% increase in this since 1970, and today 66% of married couples have lived together before they were married. I think one of the reasons for this is many young people have seen their parents' marriage that end in divorce, and they say, I don't want any part of that. I don't want my marriage to be like that at all. And so they think we will live together to see if we're really compatible before we get married. And I appreciate the fact that they're serious about the, the marriage vows like that. But then you start looking at the evidence, and the evidence just reinforces that God knows what's best in this area of our lives. There's a verse in Proverbs 14, 12 that says, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And I think we could put it this way. There is a way that seems right to couples, but in the end, it leads to divorce. Because that's what we're seeing. The University of Wisconsin reported that those who live together before getting married and then get married have a 75% divorce rate. They also found that cohabitating couples who are living together right now Only 15 out of every 100 will get married, and 10 years from now, 85% of those won't be married. And they just conclude that really, this isn't a good way at all to prepare for marriage. God says, yeah, because I gave you instructions, I gave you directions. And the Bible tells us in numerous places about guarding the sacredness of marriage. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And so in his directions, God has said, you have got to protect this. This is valuable, more valuable than you can even imagine. And I think Solomon probably thought, well, maybe the next one. But the irony is, the more he added, the less likely he discovered the joy that he was really trying to find by just adding more wives. So you get to the end of the story, and you know what Solomon says? He says, I should have followed the directions. I should have done things God's way. And I know that some of this is hard to talk about, but I also get the fact that this room is full of people, a lot of people who would have said, I just wish somebody would have told me about the directions. Scott Stanley wrote an article about 
how research backs up the fact that this isn't having the outcome that people hoped that it would have. And it's interesting because it's a secular article. This isn't a Christian article at all. But in a way, he's blaming the church for not doing a better job of talking about these things. And here's what he says. Pastors are afraid that if they preach on cohabitation, many people will get mad and hit the exits. But listen, if we really love each other here, and we do, if we're really sharing together, how can we not talk about these important things? And all of us, when it comes to love, sex, and marriage, all of us just need reminders. Here's what God has said. We all need to be pointed back to his direction, even though sometimes we don't want to hear it. Ezekiel 33, 6 says, But if the watchman sees the enemy coming and doesn't sound the alarm to warn the people, then he'll be held accountable for their blood. And as a preacher, sometimes I need to be reminded of that, that if the watchman sees an enemy coming but thinks to himself, I don't want to warn people, I don't want to be an alarmist, I don't want to sound the alarm, nobody likes to be woken up by an alarm, then the enemy comes, and the one who's held responsible is the watchman. So God gave us these directions for us to follow to help each other along. Now, there's another area that we see God's definition of marriage being attacked in our culture today, and that's the area of same-sex marriage and homosexuality. Now, we can make all the laws in this country we want to make saying that everything is okay, but the problem is we don't have the copyright on marriage. God does. And it would be one thing if society... uh, As a society, marriage was our idea. If it was our idea, we can change the rules, we can make the rules however we want. But God came up with it. It's his idea. He defined it. And it's important because he didn't waste any time. Right out of the gate, Genesis 2, he says this is what marriage is. And so it violates what Scripture would teach. 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, both talk about how homosexuality is a sin. And yet, sometimes we just think that what feels right to us is the way that we should go, even though it violates what God has said. And this is a pretty open discussion in our nation. It has been for some years now, and it's not easy to discuss, but probably not for the reasons you think. You may be thinking, well, this isn't easy to discuss because it's so political. Well, it's really not political. It's biblical. It was biblical long before it ever became political. And so it's not hard for that reason at all. And maybe you think it's hard to talk about because it's offensive to some people. Well, to be honest to you, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are offensive to people. It's because we're imperfect. And when we tell somebody about something, then they're offended by that. This is what the Word of God says. There's there's hundreds of things that would be offensive to people. In fact, I'm pretty sure that someone is offended by something that we say from this stage every week somebody is going to be offended by it. I'm almost always offended when I preach the Word of God because God's Word reminds me that I'm not as in line with God's Word as I should be, and it calls me to repentance. But that's a good thing because once I repent, I receive God's grace and God's mercy. But it's really not our message. It's God's message. Let's say you get home today. I know everybody delivers on Sunday now, and so the UPS man comes to your door. He delivers a package, and you go out and open it up, and you have no idea what's in it. And You open it up, and it's something horrible. You can't believe you got this in the mail from the UPS guy. And so you go, and you track down the UPS guy, and you just let him have it. You yell at him. You scream at him. You give him all that you've got. But you need to think about He's not the one that sent the package. He just delivered the package. He's not the one that ordered the package and have it delivered to me. And so he's not the one you're mad at. 
You can be mad at him if you want to be, but it's really not his fault. He's just delivering the package that was sent. And I'm just the UPS guy. And I'm not the one who sends the message and says, you've got a problem with that, you can be mad at me all you want to be mad at me. But at the end of the day, it's not really me you're upset with. You're upset with the one who sent the package. This is God's word to us. These are his directions. And I know what it's like to be offended by them. Those aren't the reason that it's hard. Here's the reason it's hard. It's hard to deliver a message talking about topics like this because of judgmental, hate-filled hypocrites like Fred Phelps. Or like the preacher in North Carolina who a few years ago said everyone in the LGBTQ community should be rounded up and held behind an electric fence until they die off. It's hard for me sometimes to talk about issues like this because I'm not on that guy's team. I don't agree with him at all. And it bothers me that people can hear someone like that and associate them with us because we are not on the same team. Jesus is full of grace and love and compassion and mercy. That's one side. Now, he's a truth teller. He spoke the truth. But his heart was full of love for whoever he was talking to. And the harshest words that he had were for the spiritual leaders who were self-righteous and arrogant and hypocritical. Now, if you've been on the receiving end of some condemnation from some selfish, angry, prideful person representing Christ, I'm sorry. That person does not represent our church. That person does not represent our Savior. And it makes it hard sometimes to talk about really important, touchy things. Another thing that makes it hard to talk about these things is that we're imperfect. And a lot of times as a church, we don't do a good job of following God's directions for marriage ourselves. I mean, we could ask around in this room. I think we would all have some issue, some kind of trouble there. We have some kind of trouble, and it just doesn't come off right when we haven't been the husband that God has called us to be or the wife that God has called us to be to point these things out to other people. You know, when I put something together, the most helpful thing for me is the picture on the box. And there's this picture, and I see the picture, and it makes more sense to me, and I think, okay, now I know what this is supposed to look like. If I have just read the directions and I don't have any picture, I get confused pretty quickly. I think one of the things that we do as a church sometimes is that we give people directions, but we don't give them a picture. And my prayer is that our church would be full of marriages and families that would create this picture of here's what it looks like. You follow God's will. This is what it looks like. And I think if we do that, it changes how people hear the message. People want to listen. And I know that sometimes it's hard to address these things, but we do it out of love here. A few years ago, I was working out with some guys at the church. I know when I said that, you grinned because you're going, you never worked out a day in your life. But I did. But I was working out with some guys at the church once a week. Now, they were doing that more often than that, but I would just join them on Thursday nights. And it was a little intimidating for me for a couple of reasons. They were half my age. And they started out with some muscle. I was starting out from scratch. But I really enjoyed it. But at the end of the workout, before I would leave his garage, I was always hoping that Philip wouldn't ask me questions like, how's it going? Are you getting any closer to your target weight? How's your diet? Are you eating right? Because those are questions like when you go to the dentist and they say, are you flossing your teeth? How often are you flossing your teeth? And you have to be honest and say, well, the last time I was here and you flossed my teeth, that was the last time I flossed my teeth. <laughs> but one night I was walking into his garage just getting ready to work out. And he said, you're moving up tonight, more weight. I said, I moved up last week. And he said, yeah, and you did a good job. You're moving up again. 
And I said, I didn't sign up for this kind of abuse from you. But you know, at those moments, you just kind of understand. You want to justify things. You want to say, I'm, I'm twice your age, which I was exactly twice their age at that time. And I'm a busy man. I've got a lot of things to do. And I, I didn't ask you if I could come over here. You asked me if I would come over here. And so I didn't sign up for this. But the more I think about it, the more I realize how good it is to have somebody who will just be honest with you. Somebody who will say things that you just really need to hear, things that you need to think about. And I hope you hear these things today with that kind of heart. You know what made Solomon surround himself with all these women, what made him go around what God had said, is that Solomon ultimately thought he knew better than God. And what God was asking him to do went against what he felt like doing, and, and I know this is what some of you are being asked to do even today. You're going to be asked to trust and obey God. And even though it goes against what you think makes you happy, even though it goes against what you think makes the most sense, you're going to say, okay, I, 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 I don't get the directions. I don't totally understand these and how that makes sense, but I'm going to follow the directions because, God, you have given them to me. At the end of his diary, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon concludes this big lesson from his black box, and this is what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And we think, well, I, I thought the purpose of life was for me to be happy. No, the purpose of life is for you to obey God. I, I thought the purpose of my life was to satisfy the urges and follow my feelings. No, the purpose of your life is to put God first and trust him and do what he asks you to do. And so that's what we're being asked to do as a church. If we've been ignoring God's direction in one area or another of our life, especially in our marriages and families, then the Bible would call us to repent. And so to some of you husbands who have been too passive, you haven't been the spiritual leaders in your homes or sacrificially served your wife and loved her the way Christ loved the church, you need to repent. Some wives, you've not been the encouragers in the home that God has called you to be. Repent of your sin. If you're a couple who's living together outside of marriage, now I know it's, it's not convenient. I know it may not make sense on paper, but do what God asks you to do. If you're struggling with a same-sex attraction and you've been acting out on that, repent of your sin. Put your trust in God. If your marriage and your family isn't being built on God's word, if it's not the kind of marriage where you're using God's word to give you direction as your blueprint, repent of your sin and say, from here on out, we're going to commit to doing things God's way. And when we repent, God gives us grace. The Bible says when we repent of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And there's so much freedom in repentance because God immediately gives us his grace. He immediately gives us his mercy. And we have all these stories in the Old Testament and and reading them, you'd think they're there mostly to teach us what not to do. But that's not the primary reason these stories are there. The primary reason for these stories is to point every family, every husband and wife, every man, woman, and child to their need for a Savior. And there is something that we all need there because all of us are sinners. There's not one person in this room more deserving than another. There's not one sin more serious than another. We are all sinners. We all need a Savior. And so we want to say to God, God, I will follow your directions. 
If there's a part of my life where I haven't aligned with your will, I repent of that and I ask for your forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ and I commit myself to following you. And for some of you here today, that's the first thing you need to do is just say, I'm committing myself to following Christ. And you want to know how to do that? We talked about it a lot last week, but there's people at both the decision points that will help lead you in that decision today. Just go and say, I want to follow Christ. I want him to have my life. Maybe today things are a mess. You just need some prayer. Go there and say, would you just pray for me for a minute? And so as we stand and sing right now, it's a time of invitation. You're invited to go and make a decision, invited to go and pray. Let's stand together and sing.